I wanted to start off my message with some song lyrics by one of my favorite uh, musicians that I think are kind of a cool introduction and as well as a conclusion to my message this morning. It may seem a bit odd to begin with, but I think you'll see how it ties in at the end. So here we go. Days rolling by like local construction. I'm watching the tenements increase by increments. Work on it, work at it, work, but it's never done. Nope, no. Fix the car, fix the house, fix the flaws in myself. It's never done, it's never done. Like local construction, it's never done. So my message this morning, <clears throat> I've titled local construction and what I want to talk about is the uh, concept of discipleship. So if you've been around KZMC in the last couple years, we've started talking about discipleship a lot. Um, I've been part of the relearning community uh, team that's been to um, the Innovate Network uh, workshops, etc., all about this idea of discipleship. And so we've been talking about that a lot with ourselves and talking about how do we make disciples and, then how, and also how do we make disciples who make disciples. But I wanted to take a step back because what I've been sort of learning and reading in my uh, time in scripture and just in my daily life is that sometimes we need to take a little bit of a step back and not focus so much on the outward goal of making disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples but sometimes we need to focus on ourselves being disciples first because if i'm not a healthy disciple i can't make a healthy disciple that's just how it is so it's a cycle but it starts it starts with yourself now i want to make a quick point that um, a disciple is considered um, according to the dictionary definition that i found a follower or a student of a teacher or leader. So a student, while we sometimes would consider a student to finish their student career at the end of their schooling, this type of student, this type of schooling never really ends. You're constantly following. And the person that we're following in this case is Jesus and his uh, example that he set for us. So I wanted to start with that. And my other point I wanted to make before I moved on is that discipleship does not equal conversion. They're two different things. Um, and we can disciple non-believers and then they can become disciples of Jesus. But it shouldn't stop there because Jesus calls us to disciple each other, other believers as well, to become better followers of Christ. We're teaching each other as well as teaching those who don't know him yet. So hopefully that clears that up before I move on. So the first thing we're going to do is um, I picked two texts this morning. My first one is Psalm 51 verses 10 to 13. And so I'm just going to get you to look at that yourself right now. So just pause the video and then read that to yourself. Welcome back. I know you just paused that and actually read it because that was the instruction. Awesome. So um, this was a psalm written by David. And um, from the research that I did, this is a psalm that he wrote right after or not too long anyways, after 
his most notable sin, his adultery, um, has been brought to light, and now he's come to repent. Um, I think we often think of David as, you know, the man after God's own heart, the, the king of Israel that um, was this great king and that God had called to be in that position, but that doesn't mean he never messed up. He was still human, and uh, his downfall was actually quite, quite a big deal. Um, and so this, this writing is happening after his most notable sin has um, been brought to light, and he has repented of it, and now he's kind of pouring out his uh, soul in this writing. So it starts with this word create, in most translations anyways, create in me a clean heart. Um, this create word is um, obviously in Hebrew because it's in the Old Testament. And um, it's also used in Genesis 1, the same word, the same Hebrew word, when they're talking about creation of um, the world, of God creating from nothing. And that's kind of the connotation that this word has is that it's not just, oh, I took this and this and I made, I created this. It's creating out of nothing. So David didn't think that his heart could just be cleaned up or kind of reformed. He believed it was too, too far gone. And he wanted God to give him a brand new clean heart, a clean slate, you might say. Um, and for followers of Jesus, we, we are offered this same kind of idea, this salvation and new life. And clean hearts when we put our faith in Jesus. The next part of that verse is renew a steadfast spirit or a loyal spirit. And I think what this is doing is it's, it's demonstrating that David has recognized that he is not able to do this on his own. He, he needs to rely on God to um, make him who he wants to be. He's sort of demonstrating humility of needing to rely. Um, then it's talking about knowing, uh, don't cast me out. Sort of the same idea. He's relying on the Holy Spirit. He knows he can't do this by himself. He's recognizing his weakness. And I think this is the first step that we have to take when we're looking at ourselves and looking at ourselves being disciples is we have to recognize that we are weak and we cannot do things on our own. We are, we need to rely on, on God and the Holy Spirit to work in us. We can't do things ourselves. Even the whole idea of becoming clean, I can't work hard enough to become clean. I can't clean my heart myself. I just can't. That's just not how it works. We are, David is asking God to give him a clean heart, to give him a dependence on the spirit because he knows he's not capable of doing that himself. So he's starting with this idea of I'm broken and I, I need you to fix me. That's how he's starting this prayer, this writing uh, to God. Now, verse 13 is the one that really struck me. And this is why I picked this passage because this is one that I underlined and circled and wrote notes beside um, when I was reading this psalm. <laughs> the verse says, Then I will teach the rebellious your ways, and sinners will return to you. Then. Then is the word 
that really stuck out to me when I read this? Probably because I, I personally am quick to give advice, to give suggestions, to problem solve before I've really stopped to listen. This occurs with my interpersonal relationships and as well as in my spiritual, my spiritual walk, I often am quick to think, okay, well, I can fix this, I can solve this. But what David is doing here is he's examined his heart. He realizes that it is not, it is not what it needs to be and that he needs to rely on God before he can try to do anything. So I recognize this in myself, and I would guess I'm probably not the only one. Maybe I am, and if I am, well, then at least I've confessed it to you. So I'm quick to just say what I think needs to happen or give advice without really listening to what someone might suggest or to listen to what the Spirit would like to say to me in the moment. I also read a commentary on this psalm by um, Charles Spurgeon, um, and he was remarking how um, those have, that have been taught by God themselves, like those who have um, experienced consequences from their sin and then as well experienced forgiveness from God will respond to others with sympathy and compassion. Compassion like Jesus has to his followers. Even when we know better, we often go against what he's told us to do. And I think that when we as followers of Jesus act, you know, high and mighty and um, we tell someone, um, especially an unbeliever, what we think that they should have done differently. Or even when I, if I were to say something to a fellow believer, what I think they should have done differently, then that person is going to respond, I think, in one of two ways. I'm thinking particularly about an unbeliever as I'm talking about this. So either the, the, the person who's hearing you say, oh, well, you should have done this and you should have done this, they're either going to be put off by what we're saying um, because they think that if that's how we're going to react to them, you know, coming clean on something or having a struggle, then is that how Jesus is going to act? Because we're supposed to be followers of Jesus. And then they feel like we're going to be judgmental and unforgiving, even though Jesus calls us to forgive. And so I think that that can really turn people off. The other, the other potential outcome is that that person that you're calling out on something or, um, you know, being aggressively judgmental, harsh, um, they feel even worse. Like they, they may have already felt bad about what they've done and recognized that it was a problem. And they feel so bad about it that they think God can't possibly forgive me. So it goes one of two ways. Either they think, well, they're not very forgiving and I don't really want to be part of that group. Or they think, well, I could never be forgiven. Like what I've done is too horrible. Um, this kind of reminds me of uh, a quote from a song that one of my favorite songwriters, John Foreman, once wrote. He said, every saint has a past, but every sinner has a future. So when we own up to our mistakes and receive forgiveness and then offer that same compassion to others, we're far more effective at demonstrating Jesus' love to others 
and we come across more authentically because we understand better how they feel. So when David was writing this, he was saying, I want a clean heart. I want to rely on you. I want the spirit within me. And then I can teach others and people and sinners will return to you because he knew that his personal experience with forgiveness was something that he wanted others to feel as well. I think that we all have parts of our lives that we aren't proud of, but Jesus gives us new life and clean hearts um, and the power of the Holy Spirit to guide us as we, you know, work at um, becoming more like him. So that's our first text. So that's where I kind of wanted to start with the idea of we want to have cleaner hearts, clean hearts, so that we can have the same compassion and grace. And then we're sent out to teach, to um, continue showing compassion and forgiveness to others. Our second text is John 15, verses 1 to 8. And again, I'll ask you to pause, flip in your Bible or flip on your phone app to this text, John 15, 1 to 8. Have a quick read, and then we'll come back. Welcome back. Thanks for pausing and reading it. So this is a, um, I'll just give you a little bit of context. So this was a discussion that um, Jesus was having with his disciples um, in the upper room. So part of um, the discussion around the table before he was arrested. Um, So Jesus knows at this point that he's going to be leaving. And he's kind of trying to leave his disciples with some hope and reminders some final reminders of some important things that he wants them to remember. Also important to note that it's only Jesus and um, the 11 disciples. So minus Judas, he's already left. So Jesus is having this conversation with his closest 11 followers. And um, he starts by painting this picture of a viticulturist, or also known as a vineyard gardener. Um, which is the word I will now use because viticulturist is quite difficult to say. So he starts by using this uh, picture as sort of an allegory. So in his story, just as a breakdown, even though I know you already read this, God is the gardener, Jesus is the vine, and the branches are referring to Jesus' followers. So remember, he's talking to his disciples right now, um, and he wants them to remember this story. So the gist of the allegory of the story of his picture that he's painting is that unless we are connected to the vine, to Jesus, we can't be fruitful. And I could tell you that's pretty much what I'm going to say, but I'm going to break it down a little bit more for you, give you a bit more of what I want to actually say about this. So in this, in his picture, there are three types of branches that are mentioned. So remember Jesus is the vine and then the uh, people are the branches. So very first, there are branches that don't produce fruit, there are branches that wither and dry up, and there are branches that do bear fruit. I'm going to start with the branches that don't produce fruit. So these are still connected to the vine, but they're not really healthy enough or not receiving enough nutrients to uh, actually produce fruit. Now, this is important. 
so pay attention. Some translations say that these branches are cut off. But from some reading I did, um, the original Greek word there is airy. I don't know if that's actually how you say it. We're going to go with it. Um, and this word, the Greek word, so the original word that's there, doesn't mean cut off, but it's more often used as lifts up or takes away. So one scholar that I was reading was like, well, how do we know which one it is? It could be either. It could be that they take them away. It could be that they lift them up. How do we know? So based on what vine dressers or vineyard gardeners do, he and I agree with him. He was inclined to say that it means lifts up. And he based this on what the vineyards, vineyard gardeners do. So you see, if grapevines are left uncared for, um, they often end up growing along the ground. And then they start to grow roots into the ground as well. Rather than just um, growing and pulling their nutrients from the vine, they start to grow little roots down into the earth uh, to try to pull nutrients from the soil rather than drawing it from the vine. But the problem with that is, for these vines, is that these branches that are trying to grow these little roots into the ground, they are using up all of the energy that they can get from the vine to grow roots, meaning that their energy isn't being put into growing fruit. They're using all of it to grow these roots. And these roots are not ever going to get very deep. They're never going to really amount to anything the same way that um, the deep, deep roots of the vine are. They can, the vine roots can pull up so much more um, from the soil than these little roots on the vines can. So what the vine dresser then does, rather than um, giving up hope on these vines that are like trying to grow into the ground, he starts to pick them up off the ground, sort of to uproot those little tiny roots that they're putting down, and attaching them or, you know, winding them with the rest of the branches, lifting them up and encouraging them to continue growing with the rest of the branches and pulling their nutrients only from the vine rather than from the ground. So if we're talking about these branches being us, being Jesus' followers, I think this can sort of translate into the idea of we get pulled from depending on our own plans and our own strength and our own resources, and we get pulled to being more dependent on Jesus, the vine. God knows this. God, the vine dresser, knows that we can't survive on our own. We aren't going to do well on our own. We can't produce fruit if we're just relying on our own strength. And so he lifts us up, which can be painful because he's pulling us out of the ground pulling us away from the things that we depend on, and then we're forced to rely on the vine, on Jesus' life, which, I mean, really, it's a good move. It's a great move. It's much better in the long run, but it can be painful at the time. Now, this isn't a one-day solution. This isn't a one-day fix. If we're as much like the grapevines, anyways, as Jesus has described, this can't happen in a day. It can take time. It can take feeling like our foundation is being pulled out from under us. We're losing these roots that we put down to um, 
rely on ourselves and we're forced to rely on Jesus. And sometimes I think we feel like this is rock bottom, but really it's, it's really helping us in the long run. So that's one kind of branch. I'm not, I'm not going to ask you to identify yourself as one of these branches because I don't think that we necessarily are always one or the other. Sometimes we're a bit of a combination or at a middle ground. So that's the first branch that he talks about is this one that it's not producing fruit, but it's being lifted up so that it hopefully then can because once it's lifted up and it's drawing its energy from the vine rather than trying to put all of its work into growing these little roots down and pulling its own energy up, it just doesn't have enough nutrients left to grow fruit. But once it's lifted up with the other branches, it can start to grow fruit. Okay, so then there's another, another type of branch. The second one is the branches that wither and dry up. Now this seems kind of self-explanatory. If the branch is dried up, it's obviously not producing fruit. But more importantly, it doesn't even have the sap running from the vine. It, it's completely disconnected from its life force. So yeah, obviously it's going to dry up. If you're not connected to Jesus, how can you possibly, you know, grow in him. You can't. So some scholars suggest that these branches are actually not referring to Christians at all, but rather those that haven't accepted Jesus or um, begun following him, or more likely, I think they're the ones who've kind of just completely turned their back and left. And if you're not connected, then you're not going to produce fruit. That's kind of just the way it is. If you don't have life from him, then you're not going to be producing fruit. So that's the second kind. The third type of branch are the branches that are producing fruit. These are the ones I'm going to talk about the most. So the branches that produce fruit, these are the ones that are connected to the vine, and they're so healthy that they can bear, in this case, if we're talking about a vine, we're talking about grapes. So what might surprise you about these branches, though, you're thinking, okay, so they're great, they're producing fruit, they're doing everything they need to do. We can just leave them alone and everything will be great. They're going to produce the fruit. We can harvest it and all that. But what might surprise you is that what Jesus says in this passage is that um, these branches get pruned and trimmed. So they don't just cut off the uh, dead and withered branches, the ones that aren't connected, um, but the gardener, or in, as we're talking about, the father also prunes the healthy branches, even branches that have fruit on them. And that may seem counterproductive, but I'm going to give you an example of why it actually kind of makes sense. Now, I am no vine dresser. I am no vineyard gardener. We have some grapes at home. They're completely overgrown, and I wouldn't know the first thing to do with them. However, I did grow up with many passionate horticulturalists, and I know a thing or two about plants. In particular, I know that each spring, uh, my dad and my grandpa, and sometimes more of our family, spend some time in our peach orchard uh, with the trees. We often, well, I don't personally run the pruners, but they do. They often trim off branches, including healthy ones, ones that look happy and healthy. Sometimes they get trimmed off. And when the branches are loaded with budding fruit, so when the peaches are, you know, getting a bit bigger, 
um, we often are taught to knock some of them off. This might seem counterproductive. It did to me the first time I was told to do it. I thought, but I don't want to knock them off. I want, I want to have so many peaches this summer. But I was taught that if we were to leave all of those budding peaches on the branch, there are two things that might happen. One, the budding peaches, as they got bigger, could crumble the branch. The branch could break because the weight would be too much. Or if we leave all the peach buds on, the peaches might never reach their full size or their potential um, size because there's too many of them trying to share everything coming from the, the branch. There's, they're just too many. I think Jesus was really good at visual illustrations, and sometimes it's just that our own context, our own understanding, uh, just it flies right over our head. So the peach thing really helped me consider this. So just like a branch can't support an entire branch full of fruit, God doesn't expect us to do everything. We can't possibly produce this crazy full life of fruit without burning out or only half-heartedly fulfilling these callings. So either we're going to collapse because we're exhausted from doing all these things or we're really only going to do things kind of half-heartedly or halfway, not really to the best of our abilities because we just don't, we just can't. Now, this may still sound crazy because you may be thinking, well, why would God remove fruit if I'm doing something? Why would he take it away? But I'll tell you that as a person who has trouble saying no quite a lot when someone asks me to help out, there are definitely times when I've said yes to an opportunity or more than one opportunity that I didn't then have the emotional or spiritual energy to do well. As Gail Mason often says, we ought to strive for excellence. And as hard as I may try, and the perfectionist in me hates this, but I can't excel at everything. We're all given particular gifts to use for the kingdom, and God wants us to focus on the gifts he's given us rather than us just trying to produce as much fruit as we possibly can. I've been fortunate to be part of the relearning community team here at KZMC, and at one particular retreat, we were, um, we'd been discussing ministry and discipling and then had a chance for some prayer and reflection, and I had a, a vision of a gardener pruning the vineyard. And I felt like this was a message for me to cut some things out, even good things, good things like teaching Sunday school, good things like leading junior youth. So I cut both of those out last fall, and it's given me a little more time to rest and also to focus on other areas um, that I feel gifted in um, to really focus on those and excel in those rather than trying to spread out everything. I'm also inclined to think that the past couple months of quarantine in our lives have served as a pruning for many of us. Not everyone, of course, essential workers have not had the luxury of extra time, but for many of us, even good things have been cut out of our lives. How have you been responding to that? Have you taken the time that you would have spent commuting to work to have some extra prayer or devotional time? Have you repurposed the time that you would spend driving your kids here and there and everywhere to talk to them and teach them about how, be, how to be a follower of Jesus? Have you spent all the time that you've been trapped with just your family in your home to let your family members see your personal walk a little bit closer? I'll be honest, I haven't 
taken as much of this gift of time to spend with God as I think I should have. I've been easily sidetracked with other things, and it, it hasn't always been a priority. It's something I can continue to work on, and I'm hoping I'm not the only one. Transforming my heart and my life is a lifelong journey, and it takes daily effort um, to continue to walk in that way. Being a Christian doesn't mean that you automatically produce fruit, nor can we produce genuine kingdom-expanding, kingdom-extending fruit on our own. Our connection to Jesus, to the vine that we talked about, is the only thing that can produce fruit in our lives. When we abide in him, when we rest in him, when we stay connected to him, he produces fruit in our lives because he's nourishing us. Abiding in him means we're kind of on the same wavelength as Jesus. Being in connection to and abiding in and with Jesus means that when we pray, our requests are in line with his will, which is why he said, ask and it shall be given to you, because when we're in line with what his desire and his will is, that's true. When we ask for his will, it does come true. Now to me, this whole idea of God's will has often seemed very vague and mysterious, how, like, how are we supposed to know? We're often looking for a sign that we're on the right track. But then we get conflicting messages and think we're hearing something different. And uh, it's just kind of, it seems mysterious. But not too long ago, I was feeling nostalgic. And I was listening to an old episode of a kid's radio drama called Adventures in Odyssey. And if you have kids, I highly recommend it. Um, and something one of the characters uh, said really struck me. So one of the characters, Connie, was struggling with a... Uh, big decision and trying to discern what God's will for this decision was. And uh, her friend, Mr. Whitaker, tried to give her an illustration to help her out. He said, if you're going to throw me a birthday party, what would that look like? Connie went on to describe the birthday party that Mr. Whitaker thought would be excellent. And so he asked her, how did you decide that? How did you um, figure out that that's what I wanted? Have I ever told you that that's how I would want my birthday party to look? No, I didn't. You planned it that way because you know me. You know my preferences. You've spent time with me. You've listened to me. You've watched me. So he compared that to how we often spend too much time looking for a sign from God to make a big decision, and suddenly we want his input, even though we haven't spent time listening to him, abiding in him, um, just trying to pay attention all the time so that we're in line with what he, his will is. So to take this illustration a little bit further, I decided to pose this birthday party question to a few of my friends with little to no context, and they all humored me and went along with it. So I had a couple friends that I stay in regular contact with, and they suggested things like a classy tea party in a flower garden with fancy cupcakes, or a dinner with my closest friends in a movie night. While each of these ideas was a little bit different, they all demonstrated that they knew me really well because I loved all of their hypothetical parties. I asked another friend who lives a bit further away and I don't connect with regularly, and she had some good ideas, but she wasn't as confident with her answers. She couldn't decide if it would be a surprise or not, and she only invited, hypothetically, people that we both knew because she just doesn't know my personal friends and family. So when we stay connected to Jesus, we can follow his leading more effortlessly, and he produces fruit in us that furthers his kingdom, and will, that will be much better fruit than anything that we try to do when we're only partially connected. In the end, all of the fruit that we bear is meant to glorify God, to extend his kingdom. 
not to show how good we are or what good disciples we are. We're supposed to point back to the vine. And if our hearts aren't in the right place with him, we'll likely fall into the habit of doing things that glorify us rather than God. How you abide and commune and connect with God depends a lot. And that's probably a whole sermon on its own, so I'll give you the Cliff Notes version. It can change um, depending on the season of your life or as you grow and mature in your faith. Um, It can also depend on your personality. Some people it's through songs, some people it's visions and dreams, some people it's prayer, sometimes it's uh, God speaking through mentors. And I think most of the time it's a combination of those. This abiding and communing um, and connecting with God is a daily call and a lifelong journey of transforming your heart to be closer to the Father. Like we looked at in David's Psalm 51, first we connect with the Father and our own hearts transform and are cleansed and cleaned. And then, and only then, do we get to a point where we can teach and lead more confidently to better glorify the Father and extend his kingdom. Does this mean God never uses us, never uses us when we aren't fully connected? No, but we aren't being as productive and effective with furthering the kingdom of Christ as when we are leading from that place of humility. So I'm a teacher, and before I close, I'm going to give you a couple questions for homework. So you can write these down. They'll be on the screen. Question number one, and these are something I want you to write down and answer every day this week and just see what you come up with. It can just be a few words. Question, how did I connect with and abide in Christ today? And the follow-up to this is, how did I see that producing fruit in my life? That could be something as simple as, I was able to keep my cool in a frustrating situation because being grounded in Jesus allowed me to be more patient. You could also consider how he might be pruning you in this season. That's a bonus question. If you answered, I didn't connect today, then the follow-up question is, what were the barriers? Why didn't you? And I want you to answer that honestly. You can also consider how maybe God is trying to lift you up. So maybe it was a rough day. How is he lifting you up? Jot your answers to these questions down over the next week. And if you're feeling brave, you can even chat about it with someone, like an accountability partner. And uh, consider your answers together. I find accountability makes a big impact on my prioritizing of spending real time abiding in Christ. So to sum up, God calls us to disciple others, but first we have to humbly submit to him and be cleaned and transformed. And this isn't a one-time deal. It's a daily call to follow him and grow closer to him so that he can use us for his purposes. It's a seemingly never-ending process, kind of like local construction.